Hey Nat, did you know that the FDA doesn't require tampon companies to disclose a list of the ingredients in their tampons? That's pretty horrifying. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so major brands use synthetic ingredients in harsh chemical cleansing agents, whereas Lola is 100% cotton and BPA-free. And for those of you who are a little more environmentally conscious and don't even want to use the applicator, they make applicator lists, they make various sizes, and panty liners for those who yeah. want them. And yeah, you can customize your subscription so you can get exactly what you need, you know, in the right sizes. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And it gets delivered directly to your door so you don't have to worry about like... Lazy girl's dream. Exactly. <laughs> don't have to worry about running off to the store because they will be there every month at your door. Also, $5 off your first box. Come on, guys, can't beat that. Pretty exciting. Head on over to trymylola.com slash babes, that's B-A-B-E-S, and start your subscription today. Go, guys, do it. From Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. And I'm Nat. And we are the Art History Babes. Yeah, there's only two of us today. Ooh. We're continuing on with our thesis series. That we are. Yeah, going to talk about some research. Anything exciting going on in your life right now, Miss Natalie? <laughs> I am. Oof. I wish I had more to report. Not anything super exciting. I am going to Hawaii in two days, so Woo! I'm excited for that. Yeah, but... That's going to be dope. You'll have to report back on that. I will. And last time I was over there, I ended up actually in some pretty cool galleries. So maybe I will have some art-related stuff to report back Ooh. to you guys. Oh, you should do some, like, blog postage on some yeah, art shit in that Hawaii. that would be cool. Yeah. I'm going with my dad and my sister, and they're also art lovers. So I will, I will coax them into doing that. There you go. Cool. Yeah, my life's been pretty boring recently. Oh, I went and saw... Went and saw Dunkirk last week with... Remind me what that's about, because I totally know the name, but it's I, nondescript, so I it's not I will right remind you what it's about. So, um, so I'm not a war movie person. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't dig war movies, really, but I do love Christopher Nolan, so I was like, I'm gonna see this, and I had heard, like, really interesting things about it, and still not a war movie lover, however... It was really cool. It was really interesting and like a very different portrayal um, of like a, a war story. Like there was no, there was no big like romantic story arc. There really wasn't a lot in the way of human relationships and like, and like in the sense that there wasn't like a lot of dialogue. It, there was very little dialogue okay. and, but it was like really well done and it was also like, crazy because so Dunkirk is the story not of a battle but it's actually the story of a retreat in World War II hmm. so it was a British retreating from um the Germans mm -hmm. kind of a very different approach to the war yeah. movie like usually you're talking about some kind of battle that was like a big battle that was won yeah, or some exactly. kind of you know that the side that you want to win is gonna win exactly even if it gets crazy in the middle so there was there was no it was actually the, the movie starts at the beginning of the retreat, it starts with the British trying to get, they're in France, and they're trying to get back across the water, back uh -huh. home, yep. and the Germans just keep bombing them, and like, yeah, it's crazy, but it's Germans. like... Just kidding. I'm <laughs> German. I'm not... I'm, not I'm, I'm somewhat German. I'm a chunk German. I might, I might have some. Um, but... I mean Nazis. I think we can. Yeah, I think we can yeah. scoff at all the yeah. Nazis, Fuck Nazis all all day long. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah. So it was the story of this retreat, and it was done in very Christopher Nolan style. It's very just very like a lot of like heavy music. Like there's like moments where it feels like you're watching Batman. Like very like boom. <laughs> like <laughs> um, and then, and it was just, it was cool. It was a cool, I think, approach to a war movie. So as someone who doesn't like war movies, I, I still gotta give 
props to this film. So if one, if you're into that kind of stuff, you definitely have to check it out. If you're any kind of like a Christopher Nolan fan, you definitely have to check it out. And I also just think it was a completely original take on the war movie. I think yeah. it's probably in the future going to represent an interesting shift in in the quote-unquote war movie. Yeah, no, I don't. I want to see this now. Yeah, I, yeah. Because I will say, it's not like I'm super into war movies for the fact that they are war movies, but some of the best movies that I could name that I've seen are war movies. Does that make sense? Like, I yeah. never seek them out, but some of the best movies I've ever seen happen to do with it. I think it's just such a dynamic... Um, topic you know like oh definitely it's fucking crazy like that's something about human nature that will never get boring like why the fuck do we feel the need to always be at war <laughs> like and honestly i think that's part of why i don't like war movies because i sit there in the theater and i just get like mad like why do we do this <laughs> and then yeah. like i can't focus yeah. anymore but it is also part of what makes it so interesting right? um but you should see it because i'd like to talk to you about it i Sounds think good. i think you'd really like it it's it's definitely oh, I will for sure it's definitely good it's definitely gonna win some awards i know it is but yeah. that's really bad about it i've been working on podcast stuff and trying to find a job and yeah i've been in that too been about it but yeah so thesis Hey, thesis. <laughs> so you guys um, are gonna hear some really cool stuff about Corey, semi-related to Corey's thesis. Yeah. Um. So yeah, this episode is gonna be related to my thesis research. Um. It's gonna be very theory heavy. So we're talking like big ideas more so than talking about actual like specific artists or artworks. But don't be scared away by that at all, because it is super interesting, and you'll be able to follow it. So if theory freaks you out, stick around, because it's a good theory level for introductory people, yeah. as well as you hardcore theorists out there. Also, theory is just really fun and crazy and interesting, so like, if you like big ideas and big questions, you'll probably like this. And I, I'm gonna, yeah, try and... Like, Nat's going to keep me in check if I start throwing around big theoretical words. I'm so, on it, guys. So we'll make sure it's, like, broken down in a way everyone can understand whether you're familiar with this material or not. So my thesis research was about – it was about a whole lot of things, but it focused a lot on the huge question of craft versus art, which is just, like, such a big question in art and art history and – Many people have many different ideas about, like, what defines something as art? What defines something as craft? What's the difference? Is there a difference? So that was a very central, like, jumping off point for me because it's a question that I've been thinking about since undergrad. Like, it's just a very important question to me. Um, like, who gets to decide that this thing is art and this thing is the typically considered lesser craft? Um, that's not my stance on it as you will soon find out but that is how the hierarchy tends to work is that you've got like fine art and then the crafts are somehow below fine art a lot of the time luckily I think we're definitely moving past that but that's still a question that like kind of ruminates and like people think about a lot so that was kind of the jumping off point of my thesis research and then I, I took that and started to research just the history of quote-unquote craft and I got really into the political element of it because if you're a listener of the show probably doesn't surprise you that I got like super political with my thesis <laughs> Um, so like I I got really interested in how throughout time people have politicized craft production for a lot of different reasons which is really interesting and there's also been a history of the marginalization of certain groups of people and that lining up with their production of craft so i.e. the marginalization of women and the fact that things like embroidery and um, knit work are typically considered quote unquote women's work so this idea that like a lot of times in the hierarchy of art theory craft somehow falls to being a lesser art and interestingly throughout time the people who are most commonly performing that craft or lesser art are marginalized groups. So you've got some interesting intersections there. So I got really into this research and I basically picked a lot of times in history where this has 
been a part of a very important, um, maybe like example of, of craft production. Um, and I brought up all the way forward with a main focus on contemporary craft activism, also known as craftivism. I'm not going to talk too much about that today because I think we're going to save that for a later episode because craftivism is a very contemporary and powerful thing. And I'd also like to do an episode where we all maybe get to pick things about craftivism and talk about them. Yeah, it's so big. It is. It's so big. So, I learned that from Corey. It's a huge, <laughs> it's a huge realm. It is. It's a she big thing. She knows a lot about this, guys. Um, it includes a lot of things, radical embroidery, yarn bombing. Um, most commonly, if you're very unfamiliar with what craftivism is, the uh, Pussy Hat Project that happened um, for the Women's March. That was an example of craftivism. But there's like so much of it and it spans a lot of different groups and a lot of different ideas. So we'll definitely do a future episode on it because I think it's very relevant and it's just like an interesting art form that I think we could have a lot of different conversations about. So a lot of what I'm talking about here today is theory that I applied to things like craft activism and the DIY movement and William Morris and the arts and crafts movement, who I will talk about a little bit today. While this episode I'm focusing on the theory, hopefully it will do future episodes more specifically about these movements that maybe engaged with that theory a little bit. So that's my really long disclaimer, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, so essentially what I'm talking about today is this idea of craft and a morality, like a very specific kind of morality that's associated with craft and has been associated with craft production throughout a lot of history that a lot of people don't really know about. Like it's not yeah. something that's at the forefront of things, but it's definitely there in a lot of these craft-based movements. Um, so kind of taking it way back, we're going to start back in the Middle Ages so, Middle Ages, there was really no separation between art and craft, right? Mm -hmm. Like, an artisan was a craftsman. Mm -hmm. So, whether you painted pictures, or you made books, or you made pottery, like... What were they called? The, um... Guilds. Yes, crafts. Craft guilds. Yeah. So in the Middle Ages, we didn't have this idea of like the artist versus the craftsman. They were all the same thing. They were all someone who made stuff. They were skilled in some way and they used that skill to make things. Exactly. Which I think is a great definition. Like that's an artist. Nice. That's like some like you made a thing. Put me in Marion Webster. Yeah. <laughs> I butchered that. That was not right. Yeah, that. it was Miriam. Miriam Webster. Yeah. yeah, it's basically that was the idea. Like you made stuff, you were an artisan, you were a craftsman, whatever. Then the Renaissance happened and we had this rise of the artistic genius, which is a concept I have a lot of issues with, which we should also do an episode just on the artistic genius. We could say so many things oh, that about it. That would be a good one. That would be a good Writing one. this down. <laughs> we Carry have on. so many future episodes. Okay. Um, so the Renaissance happened and we had the rise of the artistic genius, obviously. Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, like your your household names. <laughs> your Ninja Turtles. Yeah, your, your Ninja... Yeah, exactly. Your Ninja Turtles. Um, and also what happened in the Renaissance was a disconnection between fine art and craft at this point because you have the genius. The genius is the artist, the one who's doing... Is, who's painting the the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And then you have your craftsmen who are still doing stuff that needs to be done, i.e. making pottery or making chairs or what have you. But there is a disconnect that's happening because for some reason that person making that chair is not on the same level as someone painting a chapel, right? Um, so we start to have this disconnect between the two ideas. Jumping forward a little bit, and this is, so this is really where my research really gets going, is with the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution happens a few centuries later, and this is really where the beginnings of this idea that there is a certain morality, or morality like a goodness, an inherent goodness to craft production, starts to happen, because... So, Industrial Revolution, often associated with, like, the rise of capitalism, even though that's very, like, 
capitalism can be traced back to the Middle Ages, like, to be fair. But, like, a lot of times capitalism and the Industrial Revolution, like, they definitely worked together. Mm -hmm. And the Industrial Revolution, very, very rough years here because something as crazy as the Industrial Revolution can't really be, like, specified very well. But um, a lot of times it's considered roughly 1760 to, like, 1830. So that's a good span of years. That's, what, 40 years where all of a sudden mechanized production is the thing just machines fucking everywhere like everything's about machines and what machines can do and factories and like production via machines right um and in so many ways industrial the industrial revolution it changed our lives it changed the way we lived our lives and it did a lot of good things you know we're happy for you know flush flushing toilets and such yeah right know, septic tanks printing press yeah. it's all great we like, like books. <laughs> we haven't figured that out yet we like books yeah exactly so like industrial revolution definitely did a lot of good things but it also just changed life in crazy ways it's very I like to compare what we're going through and a lot of scholars like to compare what we're going through with like the technological revolution to the industrial revolution it was just a huge shift in the way that humans lived their lives right obviously during this time humanity's approach to crafting goods greatly transformed because we're relying on machines to do the work for us. Um, We have just this mass production going on and it really created the shift. Like a lot more people are working in factories on the, on part of like an assembly line as opposed to in their homes or their own studios making things because you have machines that are making them for you or at least helping you make them. Um, this resulted ultimately, and I would say this this idea probably happened 1840s, 1850s, when there started to be this backlash against the Industrial Revolution. And that didn't stop the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution kept going. But like around the 1840s, 1850s, we started to have this backlash because what some people considered to be a like cold, impersonal, industrial aesthetic emerged especially in Great Britain, where it was like the hub of the Industrial Revolution. So you have um, both architecture and just just goods, like like goods that would have previously been handcrafted are now being made by machines, and they all look the same. And sometimes, you know, they're not super decorative. They're kind of, you know, cold or impersonal or like it created what some people believe to be an aesthetic that was lesser, I guess you would say, than what came previous to the Industrial Revolution. So, like, lesser than what came from the medieval craft guilds and lesser than what came from the Renaissance. Like, you you have, and I mean, I guess, lesser in a very aesthetic way. Yeah, and wasn't it, I mean, correct me or steer me in the right direction if I'm off, but the idea of one person creating something start to finish versus the assembly line the assembly line approach where one person does one part of something so no one ever finishes anything and like if you start thinking about that theoretically it does get interesting you're like oh yeah you never really make anything like I don't know yeah exactly it just it's it's not necessarily bad but you have to stop and kind of think about it for a second the idea of starting something and then finish seeing it through to the end and finishing it even if there are imperfections or what have you versus doing one thing and doing it really well every time and being so good at it because you do it that way every time but never really doing it anything in a sense I don't know no that was um a really good way to word it because that like flows perfectly into my next point is that yeah so you had all these people working in essentially assembly lines and anyone who's ever made anything knows there's a difference between having one simple role in in a bigger thing like it's different when your role is to like put the leg on a chair than if you handcrafted an entire chair yourself if you envisioned it and you drew it out and you did all the work and then you made a chair and then you're like hey this is my chair Mm -hmm. that's a very different experience than just putting the exact same leg on the exact same chair over and over and over and over again Mm -hmm. those are very different 
experiences. Um, which led a lot of people, including our main thinkers and kind of the people that I am focusing on for the purposes of this episode, John Ruskin and William Morris were very concerned with this idea. Like they were very, very kind of upset that people were being stripped of the experience of creating something start to finish. So they they had thoughts. They were having some thoughts. As thoughts like, were had. And thusly written down um, and, and as a response to the Industrial Revolution. And it is also important to realize that a lot of people were stoked on the Industrial Revolution. Like, I'm going to get into this counter-argument, but a lot of people were really excited about mechanized production. Um, there was the, the Great Exhibition of 1851, which is another thing we should do an entire episode about. Writing it down. <laughs> um, so the Great Exhibition was basically, it was in Great Britain, and it was this really important exhibition that also in some ways tried to express um, Britain as like the winner of civilization, essentially, because it was like, hey, look at all these machines we have. It's so fucking cool. And people came from everywhere, like thousands and thousands. Was it in the millions? It was thousands and thousands yeah, at least. I don't know numbers. I'm bad with numbers. People came from everywhere to see this exhibition and just like be like, wow, look at that fucking machine. Yeah. Like people were really excited about it. Um, so like, there was lots of people jazzed that we had machines that were making stuff and they thought it was really cool and and everything. But then your boys, John Ruskin and William Morris, had kind of another idea, which I think I'm going to get into after we take a quick break. Sounds good. Hey dog, do you like BarkBox? Well, you heard him, folks. And luckily for you, BarkBox is offering an opportunity to receive one free extra month of BarkBox at BarkBox.com. For humans, BarkBox is a delivery of four to six natural treats and super fun toys curated around a surprise theme each month. For dogs, BarkBox is like the joy of a million belly scratches. To receive one month free, go to GetBarkBox.com slash babes. Again, that's getbarkbox.com slash B-A-B-E-S. All right, and we're back talking about craft production. John Ruskin, William Morris, that's where I left off. Okay, so John Ruskin. This guy, uh, disclaimer, was quite an imperialist and a bit of a racist, so not my favorite guy uh, at all. But it, this idea of like craft-based morality in response to the Industrial Revolution did start with him. So I can't like can't say it didn't. So. And people are complex. So the nice thing about history is you can find a person and find the good things that they say and like them, and find the shitty things that they say and ignore them. Exactly. Or at least point out how problematic. They yeah, are exactly. And then, Talk like, about how shitty it is first, and then. <laughs> And then be like, but there's this, the there's this thing too. Um, so John Ruskin, um, he basically established this quote-unquote moral aesthetic. He never really used that term, but there have been writers on John Ruskin that have used that term to describe what he's talking about, and I think it's the best way to describe it as a moral aesthetic. Um, there is a certain beauty that things have when they are handcrafted, there is an aesthetic that is created from that, and it is of moral goodness, is the idea. And so he established this moral aesthetic that was associated with handmade craft production as a response to industrialization. In 1853, the, uh, the Nature of Gothic was published um, as part of Stones of Venice, which is like this three-volume treatise on Gothic architecture. It's insane. Like, I applaud anyone who's ever read the whole thing. I can't, like, imagine reading the whole thing. Um, but I read Nature of Gothic, which is a chapter out of it, and it's it's good. It poses a lot of interesting things. I suppose if you're really into Gothic architecture, you should definitely read it. But, like, it's a lot. It's yeah. a very, very specific, very intense approach to Gothic architecture. Um, and in The Nature of Gothic... Ruskin suggests that real beauty exists in the imp in imperfection 
because imperfection illustrates the hand of man. So as opposed to a factory producing something perfectly over and over again, the hand of an individual is going to create imperfections no matter what, and that's part of the beauty of art, was his argument. Um, and... As a result, the handcrafted object is infused with a morality that is superior to the mass-produced object. So you're basically doing good by creating something with your own hands. Um, and he also brought up very important aspect of all this, especially when talking about marginalized groups and like the political element of this idea, is that... Basically, he made the argument that the Industrial revolu Revolution, or just industrialized society, was dehumanizing workers by turning them into, like, a tool, uh, like a cog in the machine, yeah. as we were talking about. Um, so they're a cog in the machine, and therefore, you're taking away the joy of craftsmanship from mm -hmm. your workers. You're, they're not getting to create something entirely of their own making and stand back and be proud of what they just created. Interestingly, John Ruskin also came from a very Christian, very like Protestant background. So you have these interesting intersections between like labor and like Protestant work ethic and the idea that work makes God happy. So like, um, so say what you will about the Protestant work ethic. I do think Ruskin was kind of coming at it from a good place because he was also adding in this element of like, creating something makes God happy. You know, yeah. making something with your own hands that's beautiful makes God happy. Yeah. And that's kind of cool, whether you're religious or not. I think that's kind of a cool idea. It is, because it's like the preaching of creativity. Yeah, More yeah. so than just being like, work so that you don't do bad things. It's like, work to make something beautiful that you can be proud of that is, quote-unquote, moral and good. What is that? That idle hands or the devil's plaything, pl yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's, I mean, that's a pretty typical Protestant work ethic ideal. But I, yeah, I agree. I think Ruskin, while interacting with that, was coming from it more of like a creative place. Mm -hmm. um, which, like I said, whether you're religious or not, I think there is place for spirituality of some sort and creativity. So like, kind of a cool idea. Ruskin's ideas would go on to influence the ethos of the arts and crafts movement, which is another thing we're going to do a whole episode on because the arts and crafts movement is just like crazy important and yeah. a lot of important stuff happened there. But he was like a big deal for the the creators of the arts and crafts movement. Um, and there's there's a quote by him that was kind of one of their like mantras and it goes it is only by labor that thought can be made healthy and only by thought that labor can be made happy and the two cannot be separated with impunity which is kind of an intense quote i'm gonna give you a minute to like sit on that yeah. one um <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on there but i think it's interesting because i think he hits both the like it's holy to engage in labor but he also like i think in a way, points out some important things about, like, mental health and, like, making sure, like, you're doing things, like, creative things because it's just yeah. good for you, you know? Well, and especially in our day and age, it's, like, I'm sure a lot of you listeners will be interested in things that relate on, like, keeping your mind, like, active in a healthy way and not just, like, you know, sitting on your phone or other electronics and yeah. zoning out and, like, really being engaged with things and, like being creative and having some sort of output rather than just being, like, I don't know how to describe it. A consumer? It. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Instead of just being, like, consuming information and usually useless information or questionable, just depending on. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, tangent. Um, Back to Corey. But, yeah, yeah, no, I think, it, I think that is, once again, it's a quote worth ruminating on because it does I think apply to our current consumer culture in a lot of ways but that was like a huge motto for the arts and crafts movement a lot of people in the arts and crafts movement you know were kind of about this idea which brings me to William Morris who was very important to my thesis work I love him a lot <laughs> um, and we'll also do an episode on him yeah. um and he was not without his faults either which i will discuss a little bit but um he i think took the ideas of ruskin he like picked up on these ideas of like self-conscious craft production but he did move away from the religious aspect he wasn't a religious person he was very focused on social equality and happiness associated with craft production. So he kind of took Ruskin's ideas and just ran with them. And um, and he was one of the 
you know, forefront members of the arts and crafts movement. So basically, he was very focused on this idea that beauty was essential to living a quality life. And to him, a lot of what he saw in, in like industrialized society was not particularly beautiful. Like it was, you know, it, it was a mix of mechanized aesthetics and then also you have issues with pollution like that yeah. started like issues with pollution started back in the 1800s like yeah. that was you know part of the whole thing just communities he felt like britain just didn't look as beautiful as it could um and so so he was really into this idea of trying to just make our lives as beautiful as possible which i think is really cute and awesome. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, you can't really argue with the idea of, yeah, this this marriage of morality and beauty. Mm-hmm. They do kind of go hand in hand yeah. in yeah. thought. And I don't know. And it's an important question. I mean, if you've ever taken any type of, like, aesthetics course or, like, have studied aesthetics philosophically, like... It's kind of, you know, at the core of that. It like, is. And it can be problematic. So we're oh, not yeah. completely <laughs> condoning that all beautiful things are moral and anything that is not, quote unquote, beautiful is amoral. We're, yeah. We're not saying that at all, but it's, you know, it's an enticing, it's an enticing thing. Yeah. And I think it has good aspects. Like, yeah. well, I don't agree. I definitely don't agree with everything Ruskin said. And I don't agree with everything Moore said and. Like I said, we're going to talk a little bit more about the problematic aspects briefly. Like, the underlying ideas, I think, are very positive in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways. Um, One of my favorite Morris quotes is, what business do we have with art unless all can share it? So he was, like, he was hella socialist. He was, like, a big socialist. And, but, like, he came at it from this very, well, one, he was a utopian socialist. Mm-hmm. So he had very utopian ideals, which I don't think are necessarily bad to have, like, idealistic aims. Um, but he also, his socialism, like, he was a very important socialist writer in, like, the 1800s. Mm-hmm. He wrote so much about socialism, and it's, if you are interested in the history of socialism, you definitely need to read William Morris. Um, but his approach to socialism it stemmed from like aesthetic concerns and like concern with art which was very different and a lot of other socialists at the time including like Karl Marx were like not so hot on that you know so he definitely had his own approach to those ideas Mm -hmm. and I do think at least from everything I've read he really did just want everyone to live a chill beautiful life which is like so yeah. nice you know? there's a reason that William Morris is still so talked about yeah and, like is such a he's been written about character. so much yeah it's crazy yeah the thing was he like he was a hardcore worker he like worked his ass off in fact when he died um the doctor said that when they, like, asked him, like, why he died, like, the diagnosis basically was, like, just being William Morris and having, like, lived as much as ten men or something like that. So he, like, worked really hard, but he also just, like, wanted, a lot of the time, just wanted to be left alone in his studio to create things. Like, he just wanted everyone to make stuff and, like, everyone to just, like, live equally, which I think is really beautiful. So, after saying all those good things about William Morris, it is important to note that there was a fair amount of, in this ideology, there was a fair amount of medievalism and orientalism in the arts and crafts movement, which basically, we touched on this, I think, a little bit in Jen's thesis episode when we were talking about the romanticization of a simpler time. Um, So there's a lot of that going on. It's thinking that, oh, industrialized civilizations ruining everything things were so much better in medieval times things are so much better in simpler cultures which at the time like india wasn't industrialized yet you know so like there's this romanticization Mm -hmm. um that can get real problematic really fast yeah definitely yeah so that's something to be thinking about and a topic we'll also probably discuss at length later um So, obviously, as much as I do like some of these ideas, they're not... That's the problem with any utopia. Like, to have a utopian outlook, you have to ignore a lot of things, unfortunately. (laughs) So, since then, basically, this 
political aspect of craft production and often somewhat socialist aspect of craft production. Not always, but there is a connection with the ideology of socialism that happens throughout the next century in different craft movements. For example, like I mentioned before, so you have like knitting and embroidery, which are framed as women's work and not necessarily considered fine art, despite the fact that there's a lot of skill and labor and time that goes into these things. And if you look at, you can find embroideries that look like fucking paintings, Mm -hmm. like Renaissance paintings. And for some reason, like it's a lesser form of art. Um, So you have this natural marginalization of craft production, which inherently makes it political. All of a sudden you have these political issues as a part of it. And a lot of contemporary artists have touched on this. You ha- we have a lot of contemporary artists that work in craft mediums for this very reason. They're like using me- mediums that were intentionally, mar- like that had been marginalized to make a statement about marginalized yeah. populations. A really important source this will be listed on our website, but Rosika Parker's The Subversive Stitch. Everyone needs to read this book. Like, I don't really, like, whether you're into craft or not, it's just a really important book, and it's really good. It came out in the 80s, and it's pretty much about the marginalization of embroidery throughout all of time, and it's just really good, so read it. So you have, like, that aspect of things, so that inherently makes craft production political, You also have, moving forward quite a few years into, like, the 60s and 70s, there was the emergence of the DIY aesthetic, which is still very much alive today. It's, it's been, it was strong in the 80s, it was strong in the 90s, like, it's still a thing. We got Etsy. We go, oh, we love our Etsy. Um, so the, the DIY or do-it-yourself aesthetic, which is another thing that deserves a whole episode, but basically it's we have attached, especially in, in contemporary society where everything is at our fingertips all the time and everything's mass-produced, we have become very attached to the do-it-yourself ethos, the idea that I can make this thing myself. I can make my own sweater. I can make my own table. I can, like, and that is attached to, like, the popularity of, like, artisanal living now you know what I mean that's like I want I want to pickle my own pickles like you know what I mean like like stuff stuff like that it comes from this place of wanting to maybe one attach to like a simpler time quote-unquote simpler Mm -hmm. time and but it also has an aesthetic meaning to it like if you see someone that is wearing a sweater that they knit themselves, a lot of times it has a very intentionally hand-knit look about it. It's Mm -hmm. meant to look like it's not been produced by a machine. It's meant to give off this presence of like, I fucking made this, or someone else made this with their hands. Somebody made this with their hands is Mm -hmm. the idea. And that has created an association socially in our heads of being like, oh, that's fucking cool because somebody made that, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, there's this really, so that morality continues today into the DIY ethos and the fact that so many of us are so attached to it. It's like there's something really cool about seeing something that somebody made with their hands. Mm -hmm. And people get excited about it and people want to show it off and people like to talk about it. And and it is because we associate a certain a certain creativity, but also a certain moral standpoint with making something yourself. And also like obviously there are a ton of political issues with contemporary capitalism and mass production like we have sweatshops and we have you know people who aren't paid for making your fucking forever 21 clothes you know like so like there is a political stance a lot of times that not always but a lot of times people are making a political stance by making their own clothing you know and so this idea while I think sometimes seems very contemporary, has been around since mass production began, is really the the main, I think, takeaway in this in this idea of the moral aesthetic. Um, and like I mentioned before, this is also a very important idea that contemporary craft activism is working with. And I'm not going to get too into all the elements of craftivism, but it is part of this idea that you can make a political statement by handcrafting something. 
So yeah, that was at least the the baseline theory of my thesis. Yeah. I hope it wasn't like too, I don't know, philosophical or heavy. No, I think it was, I mean, I I think it was perfect. <laughs> and I bet all our listeners do too. Yeah. But also, it's a super interesting thesis. So here's to that being published someday and you guys can all read it which would be awesome let's make that happen because it is super relevant and super interesting you guys so thanks that's so nice of you no problem (laughs) so shall we shall we listener mail it for a sec yeah we'll do a quick listener mail all right um thank you all for listening to some of my thoughts and research and stuff listen to Corey getting all bashful guys this is probably the first time that's ever happened on the podcast (laughs) I don't know I've just like kind of given my life to this for a while so it's just kind of fun to talk about but thank you for listening um listener mail what do we got all right so we have a message from AJ and the subject is, this show is the best, which is so oh. sweet. All right, he says, Hello, Art History Babes. My name is AJ, and I'm a senior from Utah State University that recently went to Paris through our business school program. On the plane ride over, it was about 12 hours, I wanted to listen to a not-boring art history podcast, and I stumbled upon your amazing podcast series. One day, after we went to the Musée d'Orsay, I sat down with a glass or a small bottle of French Chardonnay. <laughs> Cheers. And listen to your Impressionist podcast episode. It was interesting because you all spoke on Olympia, which is one of my most favorite Impressionist pieces. I could actually open a picture I took a couple of hours earlier of the original painting to examine it as you were speaking. It was absolutely breathtaking and you were discussing an art piece that I had recently looked at. I can't wait until you all go to Paris and immerse yourself in such an overwhelming amount of art history in the busy city. Which was lovely it was lovely and Musée d'Orsay was like our favorite it really was so good I'm wondering if you could pick one piece of art or a genre to be your favorite what would it be and why um that's such a hard question it really (laughs) is um so we just kind of picked this listener mail so this is totally coming off like top of our heads like what one of our favorites would be um i'm looking at a gustav klimt right now <laughs> he's definitely up there i don't know yeah. if i pick him as my absolute favorite but i he's know definitely it's hard up there. because he's not necessarily extremely likable but his heart's so oh, good fuck, dude it's so good. the first time i discovered him i was like what oh. yeah once again, we love it all, so this idea of, like, picking a favorite is not... This is literally just out of the moment, whatever comes to our heads right yeah. now. It's not necessarily what we would go to the grave saying our favorite thing is. But. Yeah, but um, one of my favorite paintings, and this is one that's been with me for a very long time, one of my absolute favorite paintings, it's funny because I'm more of a contemporary person, like, I focus a lot of my stuff on contemporary art, and I, I tend to attach to contemporary art, but one of my all-time favorite paintings is uh, Lucretia by Rembrandt. Mm. And um, I definitely... So that painting... That's a good one. Yeah, and it's at, um, it's at the... Uh, what is it? Art Institute in Minneapolis. It's either Institute mm. of Art or Art Institute in Minneapolis, which is a fantastic museum, and it's also free. So if you're in Minneapolis, you have to go. It's so good. Um, but it was... Like, I had learned about it in undergrad, and it just is... It's just a very intense image, but, like, still so beautiful. Like, because it's Lucretia, you know, like, killing herself. Like, it's, like, a very intense moment, but it's, like, calm for some mm-hmm. reason and very just, like, beautiful. And you you can, like, see, like, the sadness and, like, the life, like, flushing out of her face. And it's just, like, this really beautiful painting, which is the story of Lucretia's. Uh, is that a myth or is is it a myth or is it an actual story? No, I think it's true, right? Isn't it Lucretia Borghese? Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, no, it's super it true. Is. And she's she's a very tragic character. We could do an episode on that just because I feel like there is a lot of art and, like, literature that follow yeah. Lucretia and everything that happened to her. So we that would be a we should do too. Yeah, we should do a Lucretia episode because, yeah, there's a lot of art about her. But the painting is just, it's very intense but beautiful and, like, oddly calming at the same time and I didn't realize it was at this museum that I had you know visited before and I was actually there with some friends while I was an undergrad and I had been like wandering around the museum all day like listening to music and I stumbled on it and if you're an art lover like 
stumbling on a painting that you didn't realize like was in a museum that you're in is really like one of my favorite feelings in the entire world and I just like I was listening to music it was like some I don't know very like electro down tempo tempo like techno type stuff and like I stumbled on it and I just like was in awe and it was a very cool experience for me and one that I can't I will probably never forget. So for that reason, and just because it's a beautiful painting, I would say that's definitely definitely in the top of favorite artworks for me. Um, if you're going favorite art movement, also a very hard thing to do, but I do love my abstract expressionists quite a bit. Any Anyone who's like, I'm going to throw some paint at a canvas to express my emotions, I'm like, fuck yeah like I'm all about that um so yeah that would be my answer what about you Natalie yeah I'm gonna piggyback off of that because I was going to I'm actually piggyback piggybacking in two ways because I was going to say definitely abstract expressionists if I was gonna go movements just because if I have to just sit and like push everything out of my mind and think of what I would just like to sit and look at it really is like it's a Rothko. Yeah. It's a, it's something that's so simple. Um, yeah, if I had to go movement, that would be my route. Even artists that I kind of gravitate towards who wouldn't fall under the category of abstract expressionists, a lot of times some of their favorite works of mine are things that kind of dip into yeah. that realm. That play with it. Yeah, so I easy I I would definitely go that route which is funny because that was never my interest I've always been really into figural stuff like but that was as a painter when I was doing it more and my second piggybacking experience (laughs) was if I had to say my favorite work I had an experience at the um oh now I'm blanking on the name of the museum because it's in German but it's in or it's in Munich and it's their contemporary art museum it's Gosh, I'm really going to blow this. Yeah, I'll look it up and I'll post a source or something. I'll I'll let you guys know. I'll get back to you. (laughs) But it's an Anselm Kiefer painting and it's called Nero Paints and it's so good. Oh, here it is because I have it in my sources. Um, It's called the Staatsgalerie Modern Kunst in Munich. And um, silly me, when you're doing research, your brain is like, it's all at once completely on and also completely off. Like, you shut off to such normal things that would occur to you. So I talked about this painting in my undergrad thesis and cited it as being at this museum. <laughs> Went to Munich, planned to go to this museum, didn't realize that this painting was there, so I came upon it. And it's just an unbelievable painting of – it's a field. And if, you, if you're familiar with Kiefer, his stuff's always, like, semi-abstracted. It's just never, like, fully – it's just it's very paint heavy and like yeah. dense and dense is a good word for it. It's just it's just heavy. Like yeah. the amount of paint he's using and the amount of just material, it's like a lot of times it feels like the canvas is just gonna like fall off the wall. Exactly. And it's a huge painting, which I also didn't really realize, which is very dumb because the you know, you write down the uh dimensions <laughs> always. That's that goes in the sources. You know, whatever. Just you realize all of your human flaws but anyway so this painting is huge and I just I walked up to it and was like blown away to see it in person and it's a field with a um with an artist what's it called a palette yeah Yeah. is that the right word how does that feel wrong a palette (laughs) and there are paintbrushes coming out of the top of it and they are like lit on fire they almost look like little candles and then you look into the background and the fields are like burning and it's this whole allusion to to artwork being used for destructive purposes, which was very relevant. Anselm Kiefer is an Austrian or a German artist, and he saw or he was born, I think, during World War II. So he grew up in the aftermath. You learn about World War II, and you realize that a lot of art was, like, associated with Nazism that shouldn't have been. So, like, Wagner was, like, a big one that mm-hmm. Wagner's um, Wagner's music was used as, like, Nazi anthems, which was not necessarily his intention, like, writing yeah. them, but they were kind of twisted and used in this... Well, because a lot of times it was just, like, Hitler deciding what he liked and what he didn't. And, so, yeah. like, things Hitler liked became part of 
the Nazi exactly, play. and so, and it was like that's nobody's fault. So, it's like Hitler likes your work, like that's not your exactly. fault. You know, you, you did maybe you just made cool music. Yeah, maybe right. You were a good artist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he's kind of playing with that idea of artwork being used retrospectively to represent something that it was not intended to represent. That's super interesting. And it's a great painting, and I love it. And I saw it, and it was cool. And Corey reminded me of that feeling, so. <laughs> I've definitely had some feelings like that with Kiefer, too. I love Anselm Kiefer. One other just quick favorite. I have a huge thing for James Terrell. Mm-hmm. I love James Terrell. I love him so friggin' much. And, like, just his skyscapes and, like, the fact that, like, like all of his work deals with perception and, like, fucking with your perception and, like, the way you see, like, light. He essentially takes... He takes light. He takes just, like, nat- things that are in our natural world, in our everyday environment, and he's like, I'm going to create this, like, experience for you where all of your perceptions are just, like, totally messed with, yeah. um, but in, like, the most calming, beautiful way. Like, there's nothing quite as transcendent. I mean, like, Rothko's up there, but there's nothing quite as transcendent as a Terrell for me a lot of the time. So... Terrell, James Terrell, definitely also in favorites. Cool. And I'm just going to finish up CJ's message here because that was mid-letter. mid, mid letter. <laughs> He says, I'm not sure if you're already planning on it, but I would love to hear podcasts on the evolution of women's body in art because it was interesting seeing all the different depictions of women's bodies all around Paris throughout the museum's garden and other art. Thank you so much for your fun podcast. Keep it up. Very sweet, AJ. Thank you. Thank and you And that's so a much. great idea. We will add it to our ever-growing list of podcast ideas. It's never gonna end! (laughs) No, that was such a nice message and very thoughtful. And that was just a fun question. It was. We like getting fun questions. So if you have any fun questions, email them to us at arthistorybabes at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow us on all of the social medias. We're on we're on every social media yeah, out there. Yeah, we really are. So hit it up. If you dig us and you want to help out four postgrads who are in a lot of debt, you can head over <laughs> to patreon.com slash arthistorybabes and donate. You can, I mean, just... Write us a review on iTunes. Oh, we love that. They that's make us big happy. One. They encourage people to listen to us. So, you know, if yes. you don't like us, you know, don't write one. <laughs> but if you do like us, I guess actually if you don't, no, send us a personal message. Yeah. Don't write it on there. Yeah, if you guys have <laughs> criticism, send them to us. Like, we, we'll take those into account. Um, anyway, but, long-winded. You could write us a review. That's another really nice thing. That is, yeah, it's really nice and that really helps us out. So if you have a minute, please head over to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and write us a review. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Y'all are great. Um, we, got, we got one more thesis episode coming at you. So... Make sure to check it out, and we'll catch you next time. From Cabernet to Montmartre, they're here to slay the art history babes. Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, like your your household names. You're Ninja Turtles. Yeah, you're you're Ninja. Yeah, exactly.